In the heart of these animated wonders, there are tales and symbols older and darker than the castle's highest tower. Welcome to Occult Disney. Journey with Paranoid American and Matthew Comagies as they traverse the intricate pathways of alchemy, the shadowed corners of biblical narratives, and the very folklore that birthed these tales. Beneath every brushstroke lie whispers of writers' taboos, the cloak-and-dagger politics of hallowed studios, and secrets held close. Every magic has its price, every kingdom its shadows. Are you prepared to peer beyond the veil? Welcome to the Occult Disney Podcast. Hello, welcome to Occult Disney Podcast, where we take the mouse, spin him around for a while, do some incantations, and see what he does. <laughs> this is Matt here. As always, it's a paranoid American. Sup? Sup? Still paranoid as ever, I guess. Sure, why not? Gotta be paranoid. I don't know where the bar's at anymore. It's hard, it's hard to tell. Yeah, yeah, it's like, you know... Is it is it like do you sit with your back to the wall so you can see who's coming into the restaurant? Is it that kind of paranoia? <laughs> did Soprano actually die? Did Tony die? I don't know, did he? I was actually thinking of um oh what's one of the one of the gunmen, uh one of the US Marshals. Uh, the name super wild Bill Hookock or something. I don't remember exactly exactly who, but he'd always sit in the saloon with his back to the wall so he could see who was coming in and out. Became a drunk, forgot to do it, and then got shot in the back of the head. So, hey, sometimes you got to be paranoid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, to- total paranoia, total consciousness. Uh, we're looking today at Beauty and the Beast, which for me, this was actually my first full viewing of the movie. And, and I'll get into a little bit of why in a moment, but uh, where, where are you on this particular film? Uh, I mean, I watch it every week. It's my favorite movie ever. Now, this was probably the first time I've seen it since I was, you know, like babysitting age when it like first came out. Because this wasn't one that I I went to see in the theater, but it's definitely one that I saw on VHS in the background at some point in the the nineties. I might. I don't think I was being babysat. Maybe I was babysitting. I'm not really sure. Yeah, for me, uh, I was 12 when it came out, so this. You know, the marketing, everything for this movie was was not talking to me. You know, Celine Dion songs on the radio. Um, it's not really the kind of thing that appeals to a 12-year-old. So, you know, when Aladdin came out a year or two later, I was I was into that. I went to see that in the theater. But um, And then, you know, when I did have a daughter, and we're actually getting some of these movies and some other ones, and I just had it stuck in my crawl that this is kind of Stockholm Syndrome, the movie. So... When I was doing my research and looking up, like you know, how it was received critically back in the day and stuff, um, it was like overwhelmingly positive. So apparently, this is something that I just have in my craw about the movie. It doesn't surprise me because when it came out, I mean, this was like the big Disney movie, and they had Happy Meals, and it, it was from all perceptions of a twelve-year-old or thirteen, however old I was, it seemed like it was a huge success because it was everywhere for a, a long period of time. And even the the Be Our Guest, Be Our Guest song is kind of like Disney vacation slash Disney like hospitalities, like official theme song now. So I mean this this particular movie has become, you know, almost ubiquitous with the rest of just what we know as Disney today. Like I it's it's so intertwined with, you know, the rest of their process and the songs and you go to the parks, 
Beauty and the Beast is everywhere. Yeah, I just uh, just before I got on, I actually took a. I have not been to Tokyo Disneyland recently, but they did open about what three years ago a Beauty and the Beast ride, which I, you know, it's one impressive trackless modern screens, all of that thing. It had a few animatronics. Um, so yeah, I like rides. I hope to ride it sometime. So what did you think? Your your first watch through uh, ever. What did you think of the movie in general? Arrogant Prince is is not really a upstanding figure in my mind. I mean, it's nice that the Disney uh, heroine here is uh, is smart and booksy and all that. I do like that, but just the situation just smells so wrong. You know, I don't don't really like that so much. <laughs> I mean, is it too cut and dried if the Beast is a? I don't know. Yeah. That said, uh, yeah, th- I was very blown away by the animations. Where where do you lie on this film? Well, it's, my uh, it's definitely not at the top of my list of favorites. Uh, I just not a, a big of a fan of the musical aspects of it. But I think symbolic, like when it comes to the symbolism of this movie, it's at least in the top ten. Although the symbolism is is a little bit wacky, like it's uh, <laughs> get it can get dark. So like. Some of it is about subservience and arranged marriages and just accepting it. Some of it is about trying to, you know, like someone like beyond the the skin, I guess. Like, you know, uh, don't judge a book by its cover. And Belle's just like always reading inside of books. So it kind of implies that she's the one that looks beneath the cover. Uh, but then there's also like a, a very Crowleyan aspect to this as well, I would say, uh, with the beast and the woman um you know basically uniting i mean that's he wrote about that at length about the the scarlet woman and the beast so uh, it feels like there's a lot of interesting links there i don't think that that the writers intentionally wrote alistair crowley into it but i think the archetype itself crowley has written on it depth so i i find all that interesting especially in context watching it as a Disney movie. Yeah, just to go a little bit into the production on this, this is one of those stories that was on the table when way back in 1937 or whatnot when uh, Snow White was made. Like, maybe this is one to do soon. Uh, Jean Cocteau did his film in 1946, I think, at which point they kind of were like, maybe it's it's not fresh enough to do at the moment. And um yeah, that might be another part of my like kind of aversion of the story because Kato is very interesting, very you know occult adjacent films. Um, his Beauty and the Beast is considered like one of his masterpieces, but again, the story I've just never appealed to me that much. Uh, late eighties, there was was it Linda Hamilton and Ron Perlman had the TV show. Uh, again, it came on before or after yeah. Star Trek, and anything that came on before or after Star Trek, I was like predisposed not to like that much. So uh, that was going on because <laughs> it was like what in the way like you had to wait for that to end or the thing that came on after was like interrupting what could have been a longer episode is that is that what the logic is that's right i want to i want to stay on the enterprise d what are we doing in a sewer with a guy with ron perlman you know when with the uh, hair extensions and such um <laughs> but yeah this really this was one of the uh eisner katzenberg things that they started pushing when they showed up uh, at one point, this was going to be a no-song kind of period drama. I guess it technically is kind of a period drama still, but especially after Little Mermaid, it was like, no, let's let's Broadway this up. So they went to um, Mencken 
and Ashman, who you know had done the um, the, the music for Little Mermaid, said, "Do it again." Uh, the complication there was that Ashman was dying of complication from AIDS, so he did this very quickly for uh, writing the lyrics. I think he did about half of Aladdin, and then you know passed away about six months before this film was released. So uh, definitely threw a bit of a wrench in the Disney Renaissance machine, uh, as it were. As far as the directors, it got passed around a fair amount. Um, the directors, uh, Clements and uh, is it Martin, I, sorry, I just forgot the name of the director, but they were basically, like, we're not doing another animated film right after The Little Mermaid. We're, we're, going, we're going to Disneyland, we're taking a holiday, whatever. So they established sort of a routine where those guys would do every other film, which were considered to be the tent poles. But uh, with this becoming the top grossing Disney movie of its time and passing 100 million, uh, they, yeah, kind of their, their business model worked out quite well. They thought everything was going to be a hit, which I guess for the first five years of the 90s was pretty much the case. Uh, so this, this is definitely where I think the, the Disney we know like the the corporate behemoth uh the face is really starting to show i think about the time of this film i mean you correct me if i'm wrong on that but i feel this is when disney really becomes that that corporate face we kind of know today I, I mean i think it was already in motion by the time they started doing the digital stuff which was soon after 101 dalmatians although you still see a lot of that old style and like the you know the, the nine old men you still see some of that dna and I think by now it's like digitized all the way out. Like they photoshopped all of that old sort of style and order, old influence out. And by the time we've got Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, yeah, like, and it, it's weird to consider that they would have done this movie without the Broadway treatment and the soundtrack because it feels like that's the demographic is, you know, getting girls to sing this like constantly. And, and again, the be our guest, be our guest put our magic to the test right that whole song i i associate that directly with disney you go in anywhere it's usually where they open up the the song with so like this this i find as int you know integral to disney's modern dna than any other movie i can think of i was also surprised how many elements they added for this film uh this is the one that you know pretty much everyone is familiar with now Again, this is the first time I watched it, but of course I knew the story. Of course I heard of Gaston. Of course I, I knew that, you know, Angela Lansbury is going to sing to me and, and all of that sort of stuff. So uh, Gaston it was made for this movie, it seems. Uh, there were other uh, similar antagonists in earlier versions, especially the 1946 film. But, you know, they added him for this. All the anamorphic um, household appliances being the servants. That's another thing that rubbed me wrong about this movie. I'm like, it's kind of like the, you know, people that were working on the uh, second Death Star thing, like the plumbers that blew up, right? Uh, these servants just kind of got caught up in their Lord's arrogance. It's like the crime was working for the man or something. Right? And that always made me not feel great about this movie too. But apparently that was mostly added for this. Uh, the 46 film had some moving appliances, but they didn't have personalities and I, I don't believe the original story really had that at all and uh you you maybe maybe you have looked a little more into that original story well i uh there is magic castles in a number of the variations of the story um but they don't yeah they obviously don't have the disney treatment that you're talking about and i and just on a very tiny tangent but just like we've got chip 
and the uh, the teapot. I forgot her name already. Mrs. Whatever the teapot. But if you, there's a couple scenes when there's also like a cream uh, dispenser and then they're like a, like a craft and then there's like a sugar or something, but they don't have faces and they don't have eyes or, or voices or anything. And I wonder like what were those people or like was that just a regular sugar dish that was in the house and then it just is like slightly animated? Yeah, like I, I think of the older film is basically just kind of like stop motion or you know pulling things around, sort of things of that nature. So here having the full characters is quite different. And um, like I know uh, you know Lumiere sticks in everyone's mind. I guess he's kind of the uh, Sebastian the the crab of this particular movie. So, and it it was a little bit weird um, when the her dad basically goes and drinks out of the teacup and he's like oh your whiskers tickle i don't know it's a, a weird concept uh can <clears throat> can you give a little bit of the breakdown of the original story i think it's a what french 18th century 17th century something like that yeah yeah i've got i got some notes here so the very first version of beauty and the beast which itself might have been based on a whole bunch of different uh smaller tales but the first sort of like real version was Gabrielle Suzanne de Vianneview, I guess. Uh, this is 1940, and she had written a whole bunch of other books before this. One of them was The Conjugal Phoenix in 1734. Um, but 1740, she comes up with this Beauty and the Beast story. And in French, the, the word um, for beast also meant like lacking in intelligence. So it was like this double play on words that not only was he a literal beast, but he kind of represented um, like a brew and maybe just like not someone that that Bell would have been attracted to right off the bat beyond just the physical appearance. Like he was also just an idiot, essentially. So here, here's the whole entire story summarized in about a paragraph. The, the Beast, just like in the Disney movie, he starts out like a prince. But in the original story, he loses his father at a young age and his mom has to wage war to defend the kingdom instead of, you know, the, the dad being around. So the she leaves him in the care of an evil fairy. It gets very convoluted. The fairy seduces him when he reaches adulthood, the one that's, like, supposed to be his caretaker. He rejects her, and because of that, she turns him into a beast. In the, in the Disney movie... It's like an old, you know, it's like a uh, enchantress, they say, that disguises herself as an old hag and knocks on the door of this kingdom. Uh, and the prince answers and the prince basically doesn't let her in. But in the original story, it was that he was being seduced by his babysitter, essentially, after she groomed him through childhood and he rejects her. And that's why she turns him into a beast. So he gets, has this curse and he has to remain in this beast form until someone agrees to marry him without knowing anything about his past, just meeting the beast and agreeing to marry him. That'll break the curse. So in a neighboring kingdom, this is where beauty is the, the daughter of a king, uh, not just some random inventor. She's an actual princess um, and of a different fairy. So she's like the, the offspring of, I guess, Tinkerbell and her dad, which was a king. Um, so her mother's, her mother breaks the laws of the fairy society by breaking by falling in love with the human. So because of that union that creates beauty, her mom actually gets kicked out of like the fairy society. And she's basically sentenced to remain a fairy in fairyland 
and Belle is sentenced to marry a hideous beast. So it's like this double um, like action thing. Like not only does the beast need to find this princess, but the princess is going to be forced to marry a beast. Like there's not, there's no two ways about it. She doesn't just happenstance find her way over there and then like do this exchange. Um, so that's the very original version of it. And then her mother disappears. The evil fairy tries to take beauty's uh, life and then marry her father. That doesn't work out. So then another good fairy, it's like lots of fairies in the original story. Another good fairy intervenes and exchanges beauty for the dead daughter of a local merchant. So they like swap the, the body out using a cadaver. And then she places beast in this magically hidden castle until beauty gets old enough to actually go and marry him and fulfill the rest of the story. So it's, there's like other people in play that are kind of guiding this. It's not just beauty and the beast sort of, you know, finding their own path forward. They're both kind of pawns in this bigger game among fairy magic. So yeah, that's the original story. Anyway, yeah, the beast in that version it seems like a lot more likable just in that it's someone that, yeah, he got groomed. It, it's kind of a bad situation for him. You you could get behind him more. Uh, all the fairy stuff is, in yeah, yeah, uh, it's interesting. I definitely like the idea of uh, how it's kind of a mutually beneficial um, coming together in the end. But I do like Belle being a little more autonomous you know i do like the bookworm angle they kind of gave her in this one uh, again as you mentioned she she reads the content she doesn't just look at the cover so yeah it's kind of like you know it's it's looking in reverse uh you know hindsight's 2020 all that sort of stuff i'm like man if you combined those elements i feel like you'd be uh refining the story a lot i know the uh, live action one 27 uh 2017 basically just follows the beats of the original so it doesn't really refine anything and you know a story like this it's already been refined eight times you can refine it a little more if you're going to do it again but that's that's not the current uh disney formula for these live actions as we've previously mentioned well and the uh original story too was refined uh very soon after because even after the original release in 1740 it gets re-released again uh almost two decades later 1756 it's released by jean-marie La Prince de Beaumont and her version of it she tweaks it a little bit and she kind of writes it as a moral story and this is actually I found this interesting but this author is sort of has credit with being one of the first to start incorporating moral tales at the end of fairy tales um, I mean it, it's a common technique that you probably hear from like Aesop's Fables is like really a famous one but outside of Aesop's fables in modern fairy tales a lot of them didn't necessarily have like a very specific moral tale at the very end a lot of them were maybe like stay out of the woods or you'll get eaten or stay out of this because you'll get poisoned it was like you know maybe keep your kids alive by um scaring them so well so so the the rewrite was uh 1756 the Jean-Marie but here's where it gets interesting. She rewrites it as almost a guide for women that are going to be married off to, you know, an older man and maybe an older man that's like hairy and grumpy, and like isn't necessarily your Prince Charming that, that you always dreamt about, you know, marrying when you were going to get older. Instead, you get married off to some, you know, 
some guy and it would be really i guess terrifying for you know 13 year old girl like oh here's your husband now he's 40 and you've got to do everything that he he asks so <laughs> so but i mean th this was a very real scenario for a lot of girls around you know we're talking 18 um 18th century you know 1700s and a little bit later so it, it wasn't like a random thing to happen this would happen often enough and it kind of prepped you know girls to like get ready for that like oh but he might be a beast you might find there's a prince you know deep down inside of all that and the original story didn't necessarily have that the original story was very much fairy tale but the beast i think was also linked to the original because the um what was her name gabrielle suzanne she's the one that wrote that original one in 1740 about the beast and she herself uh was basically wed off to an older gentleman that she didn't like at all and after i think he passed away or or she might have divorced him and she ends up marrying like a poet in france like one of the the, the top known poets and and uh uh, dramatist so after this happens she comes out with beauty and the beast and it's really hard to know her backstory and not assume that it's about a girl that has to go and just live with a grumpy old guy that's hairy that's that's sort of the real premise of the whole entire story yeah it's like a, a weird archaic version of like a self-help book or something you know uh kind of <laughs> although the only the only self-help is like suck it up buttercup you know like Oh, that is that is the self-help in that case. It's a very direct um, advice that she's giving. But it, it is advice, I guess. I mean, you can find plenty of books that give you bad advice now. <laughs> Not hard. I, so this movie now, I guess, I don't know how... I guess that's the thing being a, when this came out, being a 12-year-old boy, all the girls went to watch it. And, and I'm not sure if that affected, you know how they were thinking about relationships or anything. Cause this is where Disney hits the tracks and really is going to have that influence on people. Uh, for me, it was just kind of a squib. It just kind of, you know, went above my head for me. It was, you know, again, they, let's put, the, let's put the boy up front. So when Aladdin comes out, that's the one that would have gotten me more. That's why I spent, you know, a few years as a, as a roving thief in, in the middle East. It was a superior video game too. So that had that going for it. It had that going for it. Yes, that's true. I'm sure there was a uh, as I mentioned, game, but I'm also pretty sure I never played it, but I'm positive it was bad. <laughs> oh, th there was. Uh, there were several. So <laughs> uh, actually, there was a side-scrolling one that, uh, having not played it, seems to have been somewhat well-reviewed. <laughs> so if you do want to play some old-school Beauty and the Beast game, it's not the worst thing you it could do. It wasn't on the top so. of my list. I don't know if it is still, but I, I won't discount it the next time I'm just hitting random on the emulator. My favorite 30-year-old tie-in is the Alien 3 game where the game is better than the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and there are some things that I like about that movie, but it's it's the movie that like actively hates you as you're watching it. So um, at least Beauty and the Beast doesn't have, have that problem going for it. There are a lot of Disney games that hate you while you're playing them, though. Lion King is a really uh, one that sticks out front. Yeah, and now there's a whole weird, convoluted uh, Kingdom Hearts thing, which I have not delved into too much. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to get too much on a tangent, but I, I loved the first one when it first came out, and then didn't play any of the other ones after that, and then went and got one of those like remastered, you know, play like play all the original ones leading up to the new big one that they had come out with, and uh, like they didn't improve it at all, and it was I don't know, it was just so much cheesier than I remembered it at the time. 
I'm coming from an even worse place on those. Are the only ones I played uh, were the ones on the DS, which apparently are by far the worst ones. So, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I had a DS. That's what I used. Yeah, I think it came out um, on, on PlayStation One, didn't it? Or was it PlayStation the original, Two? It might have. It's, I feel like Two would yeah. have been more of the the timing, and I'm sure Bell shows up in there somewhere. Uh, at this point, everything and everywhere. I, th- I think even like Star Wars characters are starting to show up because Disney is like, we will grab everything we own now. <laughs> so you <laughs> you made a good point earlier, though, that Belle does seem to have the most agency out of almost any Disney princess to date. Uh, even though it's not much, it's not a whole lot. She's still being married off, you know, in this arranged marriage, essentially, in the backstory. But Yeah, I mean, would you say the more modern ones, uh, Rapunzel and... Um... Oh God, Moana. I mean, I guess they're supposed to be even a little more independent. But as, no, Moana is is supposed to be the chief. So in the mid in twenty sixteen or whatever, the uh, the princess is now going to be put into power, which is I guess a, a better thing than being married off. Uh, Rapunzel's stuck in a tower. That's a different situation as well. So yeah, that's got that's a really heavy in in symbolism as well. The re- whole Rapunzel story. Oh yeah, and we'll be getting there. But yet, yeah, I do think Belle is more likable than previous Disney princesses. Well, Ariel's quite likable, but you know, she's more like, ha, 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 just a girl. So uh, <laughs> she doesn't uh, seem Bella to have a lot of agency sharper. though. Like her, the entire story of Ariel is being ruled over by her father and then losing her soul to like the evil witch. And then basically submitting to um, this guy that doesn't even recognize her, right? Like, <laughs> like it was the boy. I don't know. That it's such a weird story, and even the background of that story too. It was just about her not having a soul, um, and and it's such a weird concept of like a Disney movie about a soulless being latching on to a human that has a soul in order to kind of like vicariously live through him. It's kind of what the cartoons are themselves, right? The Disney characters themselves have no souls and kind of live on through the people that get fascinated by them. Yeah. Maybe that's one of the things that rubs me weird about this movie. We have a, a sharp heroine. I like who's in a really bad situation. I don't really like this beast. When you told mentioned the original story, I'm like, I could probably get behind that beast, but this one, he's, he's basically an a-hole up, up through the whole movie. I mean, he, he, you know, he gets mortally wounded and, and they share some tears. He makes a nice dinner, does a dance. I mean, does that really make him okay? Because he's definitely shown as being horrible. That's why him and his staff are transformed. Yeah, and I mean, he's basically keeping her here in exchange for her father's life. There was It was never uh, something that she agreed to do. I mean, she, she stepped in to save her father's life, but in the original Under story... Under extreme duress. Well, in the original story, they both had this curse... And it was both unjust. So at least they could have bonded over, hey, we're both in this really rough situation. Neither of us caused it on ourselves. Let's get through this. I don't know. Again, the original story makes way more sense as to why they would get together. Although it also has the whole like swapping her out with like a merchant's dead, you know, kid. Um, So I, I would have liked to have seen how Disney would have pulled that one off. But yeah, they just they just write right over that stuff. What I was, you know, I was saying, what are we going to be talking about? And um, the one that I definitely want to put the conspiracy hat for is that Disney does add all these anim- anamorphic uh, appliance characters. And, the, you know, the, the one right up front is, is our light bringer. So <laughs> Lumiere. I was yeah, no, that's, a, that's uh, a good point. 
if we want to break these guys down a little bit, um, you know, Miss Potts, we can get into her or whatever. Uh, Chip, uh, I, I have one thought about that. So, um, yeah, what, do you want do you want to start rolling that ball? Well, and the the armoire too, um, kind of represents being able to help Bell dress and get prepared for this. I mean, reading between the lines, like a very horrible encounter with you know the beast for the first few nights, because because in the Disney movie. It's like him making dinner and they're they're dancing, right? But in the actual story and what it, the story was written about, that dancing uh, was probably a little bit more aggressive and it was probably a little bit more frightening. Yeah, yeah, for sure on that. I, I guess something that pushes me with uh, Lumiere and Friends is she's already reading, so she's smart. They're introducing her to this world of magic. They're opening her knowledge base but physically she's being confined now. So it's like, you can learn about all of this new magical stuff, all of this, uh, you, here's a library for you personally that you can read. So we're going to expand your mind, but you can't go anywhere with it. And you got to sleep with the beast. Right, right. Hey, who, yeah. who knows how that works out? In the I end, mean, you know, and, and I, mentioned, <laughs> you moves. I mentioned Crowley a little bit earlier in this, and I'll, I'll get into that a little bit later too but also crowley called himself the great beast right but i could also imagine if you've ever seen him towards his later years you know he's kind of looks like uh like a like a heroin addicted pugsley adams you know like a 90 year old pugsley adams <laughs> so there might have been some bells that came through and dan you know danced with the beast in order to access his library of knowledge like literally because he had like a pretty sick library Okay, my, my analogy, I, I think your 90-year-old um, Pugsley Adams works. I was sitting here thinking what I would say, and I, I was like partying late night with Telly Savalas in the late 70s. But <laughs> I don't even get that reference. He's uh, the king and I guy, but he was okay, known okay. for just just like smoking, drinking, and screwing around Hollywood for um, about 20, yeah, 25 could, years. Also could so. have done like uh, Marlon Brando in... Uh... Oh God! I just had the name. I love Doctor Moreau. <laughs> or Moreau, that was going to be Plan B. Yeah, um, <laughs> and any creepy, uh, yeah, <laughs> partiers, that sort of thing. This I don't know if this is a connection at all, but being from my Japanese perspective, I mentioned just I had one thought on chip. Um, in Japan, teacups are all chipped on purpose. The only unchipped teacups are the ones that are for the emperor. So all the citizens of Japan are supposed to have this imperfect teacup where only the royalty gets the full, the full undamaged deal. And does that play out practically? Like do all the teacups that you own all have a chip in them? Do they manufacture them like that? Or is it just like a custom? Uh, they're manufactured that way. Um, I mean, if I get a Western style one, like I drink my coffee, it's like it says a month of the year or a day or the week or whatever. So those, those are not chipped. They're, western style but any japanese style teacup will have a chip in it hmm. so that that's the disconnect um chip in japan would not be chipped unless he did have an accident but the actual teacups would be chipped so if you're doing traditional you know tea ceremony teacups are you supposed to have an unchipped cup at all times just in case the emperor shows up well, that's a good thought i i think maybe the emperor's i Handlers are supposed to be bringing, or helpers, more handlers. He's portable. Yeah, he brings his own unchipped teacups with him. 
Yeah, I never thought about that very hard. Someone must bring some teacups around. Or maybe the guy doesn't actually care anymore, because why would you? I don't know. I guess you're for the emperor. Maybe you care. Yeah, you I mean, if he, if he sits down, what are you going to do? Give him a, a chipped teacup? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a very... Even, like, 300 years ago, the emperor's famously didn't have actual power. You know, it's like the shoguns or whatever, and they just keep the emperor around as a symbol. Uh, emperors in Japan haven't had, like, real power for, like, 700, 800 years. So. <laughs> Do you think if you poured a hot, uh, like, a hot cup of coffee into Chip, like, does it hurt? Oh, that's a good thought. How anamorphic are they? Does Yeah. I mean, that's that's a kind of an Eastern thing where every object has, like, its own, like, soul. So would it hurt to get hot water, boiling water yeah. And then there's also you? a scene when Bell's dad almost drops Chip because I think he's, like, holding him and he goes to, like, drink. And then I think the beast comes out and surprises him. And he kind of, like, flips Chip up in the air and then catches him again. But I always wondered, too, like, if he had dropped Chip and Chip shattered all over the ground, is Chip dead? Is he like, is he badly yes. hurt? Do they have to glue him back together and he's never the same again? Like what actually happens to Chip at that point? Oh, here, here's my grand theory. Chip goes into oblivion if you drop him and he shatters. I'm going to say maybe the hot water doesn't hurt because Lumiere is always on fire and he's not screaming in pain. So uh, I, maybe for the purpose of the object, uh, that would feel good. You know, Lumiere seems happy. So let, let's say that you drop Chip and he breaks into like multiple pieces. And then right, like like a second after he's broken, the spell gets lifted, right? And everyone turns back into people. Is, There's a pile of gore. Is, yeah, is, is Chip like, you know, chunk? <laughs> <laughs> or or we, as we saw in Fantasia, he could turn into lots of little chips. Mm -hmm. All with the same personality and make it super creepy. <laughs> Or you go multiplicity style, where each uh, copy of Michael Keaton is is different and then dumber. <laughs> also, too, do they do they retain their memories as being inanimate objects for that whole time? Like, will they always go back and like, will they remember what it feels like to be a teacup? Do you have ghost limbs? Will you have like a like a ghost tea spout? I mean, certainly they'd have some resentment against uh the beast who had them doing that for seven years and they remember every second but he didn't do it to him but he was part of the same exact spell true that is true but he uh instigated this the spell right it's kind of his fault there in this situation because he he was a prick again that's where i like the the original um story you told a little bit better where the the prince he is fought, he, like, he turned down his babysitter yeah, yeah, escaping this weird grooming situation, which in this movie is the reverse on on a pretty sharp girl who's being trapped, you know? Uh, I, I did write Stockholm Syndrome and, you know, capital letters in my notes like three times, so. <laughs> well, I mean, a little bit, I guess, uh, but she she voluntarily wants to be there and then genuinely starts falling in love with them because that is the spell like that's that's her entire role to play is to be the one that breaks the spell so i mean St stockholm syndrome doesn't usually end with matt you know love and magic curing the uh <laughs> the the captor <laughs> well that's that's the the disney fied uh 
twist on here, but the, the basic situation I just find is, ooh, I don't like that. So. I would kind of love that if, if Disney started releasing. Like, what if they did, like, a dog day afternoon, but they just sent in, like, Bell? Well, I guess Bell wouldn't work, right? Because he was, because Pacino was gay in that one. But they just send in, like, a Bell to solve, you know, any of the serial killer, like, like Dahmer. And they, well, I guess that also, because he was also gay, but. Uh, you know, maybe I guess Ted Bundy wouldn't work either. Man, this is this analogy is falling apart. Because <laughs> <laughs> you can't really send Bell to any of these places. For some reason, she can hang with the Beast. But yeah, I don't think I'd send her to anyone modern that would be. You know, would you send her to like Saddam Hussein? Would you send her to Epstein? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> that maybe that's part of the thing. Is you know, it feels like uh, the the castle's like being on the boat or something. You know? <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> that is little Saint James. That's where the the kingdom is. Yeah, yeah. With uh, the accoutrements. Um, I mean, she does make the one escape attempt, uh, rightfully so. Um, the beast is is injured in that. That's how they fall in love. I mean, it's almost like I wonder if. He probably did. I'm not going to say he engineered that situation, but when you start thinking about in terms of mind games that in real life they would play, it's like that that could be a mind game there, you know, make her like me better by putting myself in harm's way. I mean, he's essentially the ruler of that kingdom, so he's got the power to do it, although I don't, they don't really explain the rules of the beast. Like it almost seems like he shouldn't even be able to leave his castle at all um, because he could probably run shop right if he just left the castle and just went and lived out in the woods it seems like he'd be able to take down you know all the wolves and everything but i guess he gets hurt anyways like he's he's not even a good at being a beast become a local legend join a circus <laughs> uh, there's lots of options out there i mean if you don't like the circus you still got a castle out there somewhere so and i'm not quite sure how property rights work in uh 18th century france but <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's weird too that in the neighboring kingdom nobody has ever heard about this, and it only happened like a decade ago, right? Like Bell's like got it. Like even if you were to stretch it and say she's eighteen, she's probably not. But even if you said she was eighteen, it's two decades ago. If if a evil fairy turned the neighboring, you know, like I don't know where you're at, but if if like the neighboring city's mayor got turned into a beast. I feel like you would still hear people talking about that 10 years later. That's something that comes up a lot in, um, especially legacy sequels these days where they, the Ghostbusters afterlife a, a few years ago, like none of the kids had heard of the Ghostbusters. Like, I don't know if, a if Zool had attacked New York city in the eighties, I think you'd still be hearing a bit about that now. Uh, there's, a, there's another very, Oh, star Wars. Yeah. In the newer ones, like the, the new cast hasn't, doesn't know much it's all legends you know the force is legends and it's like it was just 20 years ago i think people would still remember that <laughs> or you know maybe maybe not because they're all on the spice uh that isn't dune more okay <laughs> dune if they don't remember what happened 20 years well, ago i get it you know dune they mention the spice but in star wars it's sort of like an unspoken thing that that's what because they're smugglers right what are they smuggling it's spice oh yeah Oh yeah, I never thought so hard about that. Okay, good, very good point there. Yeah, they're yeah. they're they're drug we smugglers. Need, we 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 need um, Luke, see Luke Skywalker should have become a giant worm and god emperor instead of just you know being a, a force guru living on a small island. Yeah, they missed they missed some some beats there. <laughs> 
how about uh, so we got the light the light bringer we got the timekeeper that's kind of where i was thinking we got the clock he's the timekeeper you know, saturn chronos maybe he ate he ate all the other clocks in the house <laughs> Maybe, maybe, or maybe it's just one clock. Clocks are more expensive than I don't know. Um, that's it. And so the armoire, to... and then you've got the the teacup and chip, right? That's that's all of the anthropomorphic characters, right? I hadn't. So my little thing of how we got a light bringer, we got a timekeeper. I hadn't quite figured out where we're going to put our our pod and chip and in, into that. <laughs> well, I mean, chip is the one that that gets tickled by your mustache. Like that's his archetype. Yeah. I guess they're just there. So well, and again, but, uh, who are the the two um, anonymous carafe and sugar thing? Like, what were those things? Like, they were alive. Yeah, and how, I, I guess how many servants are here? Because uh, there is the female candle as well, who does not get a name and uh, is barely in the movie. But there's clearly a few other characters in the background we just don't associate with much uh like i was watching the ride through of the tokyo disneyland beauty and the beast ride which was kind of uh it, it looks like it basically puts you into like four like really ornate rooms where you stay in each room for like two minutes a bunch of stuff happens so the br guest thing makes it clear like there are just like hundreds and hundreds of animate objects which even the movie doesn't quite show us because we just basically see these four that we uh, follow as characters but and I, 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 yeah, I, I wonder too if you know when Belle shows up there, like she's only getting greeted by f- like four or five of the servants. But if there's more than that, you know, I don't know. Are they not doing their jobs the whole time? <laughs> are they doing their jobs now? Well, I guess your I job mean, is now just to be a fire to pour tea. Well, I should so. say, brave little <laughs> toaster. Daily's cleaned up, even though they were they were just inanimate objects. They got up and they would like clean, right? They would dust and and like arrange stuff. But these guys, it's literally their job is to keep this castle clean. And the second they get turned into an inanimate object, they just stop doing their jobs. Except for, I guess, just the handful of them that we see, Lumiere and and Chip, and you know, like I guess you just by being a clock, you're kind of always doing your job, so you doesn't have to like work at it. <laughs> There, that's another layer of Stockholm syndrome. We're stuck here, so I guess we'll just do the job. <laughs> but yeah, if you're a candle, your job you can just stand there and you're doing your job. So that works out well. That that's is that the perfect job? I don't know. <laughs> well, was he a candle for twenty years, burning like eternal flame? Sure. <laughs> the power of his life force was keeping the fire going. I don't know. I mean, what's it? What's the wax made out of? Uh, you said that he he doesn't feel it, right? But I mean, there's still bits of him that are that are burning off. Or maybe he's just gotten used to the pain. So as he's bright and cheery and talking to you, he's uh, he's in torturous pain. <laughs> they don't seem that relieved. I mean, when they get converted back into humans, they're happy about it, sure. But it's not like, oh, thank God, you know, I'm no longer burning alive. This is great. um i mean just for hellish jobs i I was driving around yesterday and um passing a construction site on the highway and there were two guys whose job was just to stand there hold up a green flag put it back down hold it up put it back down they're probably there for like eight hours when we drove back later it was pouring rain so now they're doing that in the pouring rain as well i'm like that is a that job sucks 
that's just standing there, but it eats it. <laughs> yeah, but you don't have to bring that one home, right? It's it's not like you're. I assume that your boss doesn't call you up in the middle of the night and it's like, hey, man, you you held the the flag up at the wrong time earlier. You're gonna have to go back into the office and and go and like hold it up three or four times again to correct that. Yeah, I guess you do get to stick to your work hours in that case. But uh, I was I felt bad the first time we passed, and then the second time it was. It, pouring rain it's windy we were by the sea yesterday and the wind was so strong i got like sand blown into my mouth just walking down the sidewalk on the street <laughs> i think that's the first time for that to happen yeah so <laughs> yeah man, man don't run around uh you know singing be our guest with your mouth wide open while there's a sandstorm going on i guess that would have been a terrible time to sing sing be our guest uh, yeah painful rain you know is quite exciting to be honest but uh <laughs> uh what else do you have in your notes i don't I want to make sure we get to to all the salient points uh, i think you have a little more crowley coming up here yeah well i'll just jump right into the crowley <laughs> stuff so i mean i want to i want to preface this without going wild because i want to reference this book that i got turned on to recently called the golden bow and i say book but really it's a set of 13 books like it would, it would be enough to, you know, um, like you, you could kill somebody with the golden bow if you just dropped the entire set on them while they were sleeping. It is <laughs> massive. Uh, the, these thirteen huge books, and it's all about ancient magic, specifically as told in fairy tales. And uh, it was written by a guy named Fraser. And in in all of this golden bow, he kind of harks onto this one central theme, and the theme is that kind of like in the Disney princess world that we're used to today, it's a patriarchy, right? You've got like the king and the prince. And then if you marry the prince, you get to be the ruler of, you know, you get to be the queen or the princess of the kingdom. And it's always about matching them up with the prince and Cinderella wants to go and, you know, meet the prince. But that's all actually like the inverse of how it used to work. It used to be matriarchal specifically because they wanted to weed out the possibility for inbreeding and on, on top of inbreeding these dynasties where it would just be, you know, you have to, to be ruled by the king's great, great, great grandson just because it got passed down from grandpa to father to son and there's no merit based in any of that. And that's when you get these, these horribly corrupt rulers. So the way that they used to combat that is that it would go through the princess. It was the princess that you had to court in order to become the king. So you'd have to come from far away. You couldn't come from within the kingdom. You have to be a faraway stranger. You'd come in disguise, and then you would have to win some sort of a merit-based you know, um, competition. My, my favorite example of this that I think explains it the best is Robin Hood, specifically the Disney one. You've got, yeah, Errol Flynn. Oh, okay. You've got Errol Robin Flynn Hood coming from the woods, right? He dresses up like the stork, I guess it is, and he enters the competition. He wins the archery competition, and all of this is he gets to win the hand of Maid Marian. And in doing so, he's elevating himself up into this this next like realm. He kind of gets to become like a, a prince slash king um, because King uh, Richard is gone, his, his brother that's the corrupt one. Again, reinforcing that when it passes down through lineage, then that's where corruption tends to start. Whereas you've got this this outsider, right? Robin Hood comes in and he wins it based on merit, and he's actually the good guy. So, so that's the the archetype. And I'm not going to get into like the summary of the whole 13 books, but Alistair Crowley 
had a, a book that he wrote on the Thoth Tarot deck. The Thoth, the, the Thoth Tarot deck. It's so hard to... to Thoth, Thoth Tarot. Thoth, it is hard. Thoth Tarot yeah. deck. Okay. Say, say that one a few <laughs> times fast. So say that 93 times fast. But he... Um, <laughs> So he summarizes this and he mentions the beauty and the beast is another telling of this. And it's hard to adapt it to the 1996 version. But when you read the original version uh, or just read the synopsis of the original version or listen to this podcast where we read the synopsis of the original version, <laughs> but she was a princess and he was a prince, but it kind of inverts it in that he is the beast. He, he's been transformed, but she's the one that has to come and like break him from his spell, but then he gets to inherit everything that she had because she, in fact, was a princess, and he was kind of this like scorned prince that no longer had a kingdom to rule over because he's you know laden with this horrible curse of a beast. So he is that outsider that shows merit in that like he can get her to love him, and so this is the the concept of the golden bow, and the reason why they they part of the golden bow is that. After you marry the princess, you have to kill the king. And by killing the king, you essentially inherit all of the kingdom. And that's the golden bow is that you like break off um, like a, a branch from the tree. So you're literally like snapping off pops from the family tree. He's gone now and you fill his place. Also gets into the king kill ritual. This is exactly where all that comes from. It's, it's replacing who's in power with the next person that... Uh, rightfully should inherit it and not just being passed down. Yeah, I guess we put that on the 1996 version and the beast inherits a bunch of half-assed uh, inventions and then kills Bill's father. Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> Him being an inventor kind of takes so much away from that original concept and how it works into this. But the, the other thing too that Crowley likened this to is that Beauty and the Beast, he mentions that story by name, um, but he, he basically elevates that into modern times and he says that like today's version of the beast is the gentleman gangster um or like the gentleman robber of, of like the victorian age where it's the criminal and he's doing bad things but he's doing it with like style and with pizzazz and he knows how to treat a, a lady right um so he could potentially be the one that could come in like steal your kingdom away another uh, more modern example would be like al capone or like that mobster boss where like they're they're a horrible person you know they're full of vices and violence and everything bad but they seem to be lovable like they always got you know like women around um and and they're like family men you know and it's like this on the day of my daughter's wedding you know like that that concept of being a beast and a brute but also lovable it kind of fits this exact same archetype and because you have to kill the king. So you can't just be like uh, a complete pacifist prince, right? You can't be like the nicest prince ever. What, uh, or not, um, the little mermaid, right? I forgot the, the dude's name, but he maybe wasn't a great example of this golden bow aspect. You know, he might've been one that just inherits it on the way because you've got to be that gangster boss that can walk in and like kill your fiance's, dad essentially and then be like this is my house now so that that's like the you know um to, well almost 100 years ago with crowley saying that and i'm wondering now is is someone like james bond our current archetype for that you know because we take the royalty aspect out somewhat but he's 
he's the master spy for England. He keeps, you know, he's allowed to be a bit of a brute, but we're supposed to consider him charming. And he takes out the people that are becoming more powerful spies all the, or, you know, espionage sort of supervillain guys. Right. right? And, he, and he's always an outsider and he always works his way into some inner circle, usually by courting. Uh, a woman of some kind. It's not. It's not a one for one replacement of like the traditional Golden Bow uh, story tale. But James Bond absolutely represents that gentleman uh, robber. I think. Well, and also I'm saying like kind of James Bond basically like is like an icon for England. He's he's like represents Britain in a way. So we if you know like a story of royalty in the modern age, like, you know, beauty and the beast takes place in the 18th century. It wouldn't make sense happening now much. I mean, you could do it. You could have, uh, the beast as like some high powered bad exec or something, you know? I mean, you could, you could tweak it. I guess that's, I think that's what the late eighties show does a little bit, but, uh, well, I, I actually have a note here because it's, it's funny. You mentioned this because even in the 1800s, there was a James Bond aspect to this. And that's because the lady that rewrote it in 1756, um, she was married to a guy, to a French spy named Thomas Pichon, who was labeled as the Judas of Acadia. So he was a, he, this is the weirdest ongoing theme with all these freaking story tales. Intelligence, man. Like somehow intelligence is always at the root like this this story might not have made it all the way to modern day if it hadn't been for this lady that's directly connected to a legit spy and how many stories we like remember 101 dalmatians there was like an intelligence link um jungle book there was an intelligence link obviously the sherlock Holmes, the great mouse detective there was an intelligence link it feels like even if it's not disney related the people that originally write these books and cause them to just enter the public sphere consciousness tend to be intelligence related. Psyop. Oh, the rescuers. Let's not leave them out. Rescuers. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that was NATO. That was essentially, you know, a, like a NATO pitch. Yeah. I feel like that's almost like the, the most on the, you know, front, like you barely have to work a metaphor out on that <laughs> yeah. one. <for> the... <laughs> well, you don't really. I mean, it's pretty much obvious. Um, but yeah, I, I do like, how, I guess the golden bow, we say what there's, eight to 12 basic story archetypes. And that is a very strong one that is a little more in our subconscious. We don't like, we always think about the hero's journey, right? But this is different. This is kind of like the consolidation of power journey. <laughs> yeah. And, and this was this sacred ancient way of preserving and making sure that the, the ruler of a kingdom or, you know, an area would always be, uh, like the most fertile, it would always be the most go-getter, you know, that wasn't going to be um, procrastinator. It wasn't going to be just some kind of like nep, you know, nepotism baby where they just get into their position because of the way that, you know, luck works out. It would actually always have to be someone constantly challenging. Um, and that just, it like, it kind of keeps it uh, nice and fresh, right? It's like someone constantly stirring the coffee pot instead of just letting it get stagnant and like sitting there for a while that's kind of this aspect but that gets removed because what do we have now for the last two or three hundred years especially when this was written like that was way out of the the book by that time right like it's no longer matriarchy it's been patriarchy since you know as far back as you can go into written history essentially as far back as the bible goes um because this patriarchal society specifically means that 
you know, um, like what's the book of numbers? It's all begat, 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 right? It's like this dude had this dude had this dude had this dude. And therefore, you know, this guy owns everything that we just mentioned and, and all the, you know, all the resources and concubines and, but that's not how it used to be. And that's what the golden bow is about is, is how I guess it's kind of talking about the way it should have been or like the, the way that it, that it worked out the best for people in general, but by subverting the golden bow, you've just got people that can pass it on to their kids indefinitely. And I want to go on too much of a tangent, but, but, um, a really fun conversation I had with my friend, David Charles plate on this is that Bohemian Grove is the symbolic inversion of the golden bow. Because what happens is that they do the cremation of care. It's where they, they basically, you know, burn care as this effigy, but care very might well represent that foreigner that might be Robin hood trying to sneak into the kingdom and basically set things right again. And by capturing care and burning care, they make sure that for another year they get to keep living it uh, under their terms and they can pass it on to their kids and they don't have to worry about someone coming to take them out and taking their power. So, and that's sort of the ritual that we live in today is the inversion of the golden bow um, which Beauty and the Beast, like that's the the right version in a way, which is a weird way to think about it. Yeah, I guess that's the thing with this this Disney movie is it's very well animated. The voice acting is very good. It's well written. I mean, not, the songs are not for me, but of course they're very popular songs that are now standards. But yeah, we're missing a bit of that archetype. So the basic situation seems a little more non consequential. You know, we're finding all the all the occult and the details here, but the story itself as portrayed in the film uh, seems to be missing a little bit. I, that, that fairy tale aspect. The story that, in know, the film is aspect. like, you know, um, it's very much in line with the forced marriage morality <clears throat> sort of lesson where it's like, you're going to get shacked up with this dude, deal with it, make <laughs> the best of it. That's in my opinion, that's the closest that the Disney movie takes from the original fairy tales and it's essentially and that. that's probably the least interesting part it is the least interesting <laughs> part yeah and it, and i would also say in 2023 re-watching it, it 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 felt problematic not because i was offended but it's just like now you can tell when something plays and you'd be like "Ooh, like there's probably going to be a news report about this plot line you know what i mean but it's from 96 so it gets that like 90s pass but it's it's uh it's interesting I wonder if that's another thing with the live action remake, which I, I didn't watch for this, but you know, it's like, well, it won't be a problem because it was, we already did it. So we're just doing it again. So we'll, we'll make a few tweaks to make people happier now, but it's basically the same thing. We can get away with it. <laughs> I did watch it. I just, I don't remember much of it. And I, I wasn't watching it knowing what the original animation was like and how they, they caught up, but it, it didn't seem as problematic uh, in the live action version because uh, Emma Watson has a, even more agency than Bell does in the, you know, the animated version, obviously. But I do remember when they, when that one came out, they're like, Hey, look, this character's now gay. We're being progressive. Gaston. You know? Yeah. Gaston, they made gay, I think. <laughs> is he, Oh, is he the one? That's I think, gay? I, okay. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's how it was like an inside joke that, that he's like so obsessed with, you know, how he's perceived, but it's just because he's in the closet. Oh, okay. Okay. Hey, that's actually not a bad... I, I, I didn't watch it. I'm like, that makes sense. So I don't think I'm going to watch that movie, though, even though I like him a Watson, but... 
Uh, yeah, I just have have a weird aversion to these live action ones. So, you know, may, maybe if uh, we really take off and need a Patreon tier, or someone can we can force ourselves to watch them. But <laughs> otherwise, I don't think I want to. You know what's? Uh, I mean, I'll say funny. I don't have a better word for it. But Gaston in the parks tends to be one of the more sexually harassed characters, and I think it's because when you when you see him and you're in like you know if you go to the park and you feel like you're in a Disney movie and you're not in real life anymore, women will see Gaston and be like, that's the guy that's an asshole, but he's also really hot. So it's like appropriate for me to go and, you know, like touch him or say inappropriate things to him because he's kind of like a villain in a way, right? Like he, he sort of is um, like a machauvinist towards Belle so that when people see him in the park, he doesn't really fit into the regular protagonist role. So anyways, th- there's a lot of women that get kicked out of the park because they're, they're being inappropriate with Gaston in particular. No, I, I heard a few podcasts with people that did face characters in the parks and they, they have some pretty entertaining stories to tell. So, <laughs> and, and so yeah, maybe the Gaston has some, some gnarlier ones to tell. I don't know. <laughs> well, any, any of ones that are like villains, because even adults at some point, like, they they don't know how to turn it off, right? They've been like Disney programmed them too well, so they see a bad guy and they're like, "Oh, bad guy, danger," you know? Yeah, yeah. There are kids kicking you. Yeah, that sort of thing. I'm sure that happens quite a bit as well. You show up and you're like Venom, and all the kids just like start attacking you because, I mean, that's kind of what you would hope your kid. I mean, maybe not attack someone wearing a symbiote alien suit, but. Well, I, I do have a Spider-Man costume in my in my claws, and I might use it next week. We'll see, but not Venom. So kids, they like never Spider-Man. look badass. The the real life Spider-Man costumes never look badass. I've seen one or two at like comic conventions, but they have to be like incredibly expensive. The the ones that look pretty decent. Oh yeah, no, I have a very lame one. It's just entertainingly lame. Yeah, that's what I'm, that's I'm, most I'm, of I'm them. Big, I'm a big fan of entertainingly lame. So <laughs> so. Um, I, I mentioned a couple other uh, Crowley notes in here. So in, in that same exact tarot book, towards the end, he talks a lot more about um, beauty and a beast, but he transitions into talking about the book of Revelations, and it's no longer about the fairy tale beauty and the beast, but he keeps referring to it. So he, he mentions um, that there's diatribes in the Bible against the beast and the scarlet woman in the chapters of the apocalypse. But then he says that he he has this entire write-up and I'm going to not read the entire thing verbatim, but I'm going to gloss over it because he, he references over and over the beast and the scarlet woman. And it kind of takes the same exact golden bow, um, you know, passage that he breaks down way earlier. Basically he, he breaks down every card in the tarot deck within the context of golden bow. So here's, here's the tail end of that. He says that she rides astride the beast in her left hand holds the reins representing the passion which unites them in her right she holds aloft the cup the holy grail aflame with love and death in this cup are mingled the elements of sacrament of the aeon so so in the left she's got the reins which represent the the bonding like the actual combination of the the fail the male and the female combining together into one she has control over that through the reins. And then in the, um, in the Holy grail, she's basically got like the magical blood. So then he mentions that 
there's seven uh seven are the veils of the dancing girl seven are the names seven are the lamps beside her bed seven eunuchs guard her with drawn swords no man may come to her in her wine cup are seven streams of blood of the seven spirits of god seven are the heads of the beast on which she rides the head of an angel the head of a saint the head of a poet the head of an adulterous woman the head of a man of valor the head of a satyr and the head of a lion serpent um this typical Crowley, you know, just kind of like stuff you'd read to your kid to go to sleep. <laughs> and he says, now that that the um, now that, you know, the chosen priest and a possible infinite space is the prince priest, the beast again, this the prince beast um, and in his woman called the scarlet woman, all power is given. They shall gather children into their fold and bring the glory of the stars into the hearts of men. For he is forever a sun, and she is a moon. But to him is the wing's secret flame, and to her the stooping starlight. And then he says that behind the figures of this beast and his bride, again, beast and the bride, beauty and the beast, are ten luminous rayed circles. They are the Sephiroth, Leighton, and not yet in order. So beauty and the beast coming together, he also describes as the tree of life and the entire golden bough is all about the cycle of life and death so the tree of life the life and death beauty and the beast and the way that he's describing it here is the scarlet woman and the beast i i believe he's he is crowley is writing about beauty and the beast here and tiling it all together towards the end and then i've got uh as well say think about the sequels you could have gotten out of that as opposed to just bell's christmas adventure we're not i mean <laughs> I think it's on the table, man. I think a, a Crowley-inspired Disney sequel is... We probably just have to wait for a, a few more generations uh, of people that would, like, picket it. But I think that it's ac actually on the way. Someone's got it written, and they're just waiting for the rest of the world to be ready for it. So, uh, Someone's written everything. Um, this is just with the, the seven veils, seven tears, all that. I, I was actually bringing up the wiki on my phone here because uh, you were saying oh, it's been, like, 20 years since the prince was transformed and i had it stuck in my head that it had actually been seven years since the beast the prince had been transformed in a beast um i'm now looking at the wiki and realizing it's because it says several years and i just uh you know sometimes your brain makes that into seven and i, and I think in the movie it's like nine years i think they might even say it. it's like nine years or ten years and mm. she shows up like nine years in you know so it's like ticking clock um but in the original Actually, I don't even know. In the original book, I th I think it was basically symbolized the amount of time that that she was around. Like it symbolized her age. Right. Okay. And then and then Crowley just wraps. I mean, he doesn't wrap it up. It's a long book, but I'll wrap it up. <laughs> he for never him. wraps anything up. <laughs> oh, Babylon, the mighty mother that rides on the crowned beast. Let me be drunk upon thy wine and fornications. Let thy kisses wanton me to death, that even I cupbearer may understand maybe there's chip maybe chip is the cupbearer in this uh in this like tarot analogy right that would make sense if the cup was the cupbearer and then he says through the ruddy glow of the cup i may perceive far above the infinitely great vision of babylon and the beast whereon she ride is the lord of the city of the pyramids beheld in the 14th ether and he goes on about more and more numerology and he starts breaking stuff down. But he also shows how like beast, uh, the letters added up can eventually get to like seven, but then he turns it into six, six, six. And 
I mean, that's his thing, right? It's, it's always like tying it back around. But again, <laughs> I, I find this crazy that Crowley himself wrote about the significance of Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, it, I mean, of course, Disney definitely could not have gotten away with a um, beast riding fornicating bell in 1991. But so it's what I'll he represents. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, the symbolism's there. You know, again, that's the point. They of just dance. You're like, wait. They, they just dance. What that's is all this? they do. They just dance. <laughs> they just dance. That's all. <laughs> you didn't see what happened after a dance. <laughs> Very different movies in this one. Yeah. <laughs> Have we, uh, That's the end of Crowley Road, is it? Yeah, if... I'm curious. You want if you show this to you know your daughter, what message? I avoided showing this is this is maybe this is the Disney movie I kind of avoided showing to my daughter um, because the message seemed weird to me. At you mean? But, sorry, I think I interrupted. Well, even when she was younger, you were like, eh, I don't know if I like the message, but you hadn't seen it, or you you just knew what it was about and you still didn't like it. I mean, I mean, I knew the plot, so. That sort of thing. And it's not, again, it's not like me being offended. It's just like, ah, eh, this isn't really the avenue I want us to, you know, vibe with, you know. Um, Aladdin, that was cool. Yeah, I, we, Little Mermaid was on a few times. That's fine. But somehow this one, I think it is, uh, you know, as we've been talking about it for the past hour, it is that Belle is sharp. She's not just a dumb princess stumbling into a bad situation. She's a smart young woman, you know, ending up in a bad situation, uh, through her fault and that she offers herself, but it's an impossible situation, you know? So you just tell your daughter, I mean, like, to, don't stand in for me. Just let me be kidnapped. <laughs> yeah. It, it turns out all right in the end, of course, but that that's the fairy tale aspect of this. It's like in 99% of situations like this, it's not going to work out well in the end. <laughs> but since it's a mat, since we have magic and, and singing and, you know, Broadway tunes, um, we can do that. And, also, it would be a much darker movie otherwise. But the story has a fair amount of darkness, especially in the older iterations. So, I mean, you've seen Game of Thrones, right? I've seen some of it. Uh, you you well, can the first, spoil the first season. You you've seen the first season. Uh, I've seen like the first couple episodes. But, no, I mean, yeah. the, the Beauty and the Beast tale in Game of Thrones style would be uh, Daenerys, and I can't remember the dude's name. Is that the Momoi guy? Yeah, yeah. J- uh, okay, I, then I, I know what you're talking about. Then yeah. So like <laughs> she like she didn't want to be with the Beast, right? But she had to yeah. just kind of accept it because she had this forced marriage, or I mean, they they're basically kidnapped there. Um, but she had no choice about it, so she had to take on that archetype of Belle in this beauty and the beast sort of scenario where it was like, make the, make the best of it because you really have no other options. There's no woods to run into. There's no other kingdom to flee off to. Um, and that, I think that was the original message of even the first book, but that was the first version of it was her using an experience that she went through and kind of, you know, like, venting it out through the concept of the beast. But then the lady that followed up after her was like, Oh, what a great message. We should teach this to children that this is how the world works, which is where the 96 one took most of its inspiration from, which is what gives you that weird feeling. I wonder if this movie feels a little bit like taking a job when you really don't want to. (laughs) I mean, that, you know, I think that's a teenage thing. Like, oh, God, what if I end up in a really crappy job later? In yeah, life? but what if, what if your dad's working to himself case? to death and it's like, all right, mm-hmm. I'll step in. I'll take over the job. Yeah. So this version of the story maybe has a bit of a just subconscious 
drag on the, you know, having to take a place in society that you don't want to. And again, um, it, it neuters it a little bit because originally she was royalty, but in the Disney version, her dad is like just some random inventor. He he almost, and it doesn't even seem like he's an incredibly impressive inventor. He's kind of like the dad in, in uh, Gremlins. Like he's got the little fork, um, sort of like, you know, utility <laughs> knife and maybe like the orange juicer that doesn't work very well uh, because he doesn't have the merit that it would take to elevate her outside of the, the role that she's got in society. Well, it's way more entertaining when he's making garbage. I mean, if he had legit inventions, yeah. <laughs> It's not, that's, that's less interesting. I mean, for the consumer, it's better, but for the uh, film viewer, it's much worse. Wait, you know? and, it, and that was to show that, you know, her whole family was smart. You know, her dad was smart and she was smart. And again, going back to the original book though, that beast also meant like an illiterate, an illiterate idiot. That's a fun word to, to screw up. An illiterate idiot because... It wasn't just he doesn't look good, which again, this is this is one of the parts that gets annoying about the Beauty and the Beast cartoon is that at the end he turns into a prince again. So it's like even though you were able to see through that and you know like love him for who he was, you get rewarded because now he's going to turn into like a, a ten again at the end. So it's like you didn't actually have to learn that. You only had to learn it for like a brief moment in time, long enough to say I love you, and then it goes away, which. I don't know. It, it feels like it takes away from some of the message. Like he should have gotten even uglier when she said, I love you. Yeah. He'd look like the last Habsburg once he transforms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, specifically, did, did you see that 30 rock episode where Paul Rubens is playing the last yes, Habsburg? Yes. <laughs> I'm thinking of that one. <laughs> and ironically, that's what the golden bow is supposed to, uh, to avoid is hey, something exactly th- like that. that. No, I bring it up now because I was going to bring it up when you mentioned that earlier, right? And uh, we got off on another uh, rocket. So, <laughs> but yeah, that image just keeps popping my head like, hey, she could have ended up with, with that guy. <laughs> More realistically, she would have ended up with And this story would have been read to her to get over it. Yeah. Yeah. Then it exactly. would have been like, hey, at least you didn't get married to like a literal beast that would just be tearing you up. Uh, you just got to deal with <laughs> this this guy that's an idiot. Yeah, that might be another thing with since it's a Disney animated design here. I mean, the beast is like kind of cool looking. <laughs> like, I feel like the beast should probably be like legitimately terrifying. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but also, I mean, you could say the same thing about the TV show, right? With Ron Perlman. Yeah, I mean, furries would like this guy. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, there's just one more production thing that I wanted to bring up. Uh, I don't know if this influences it or not, but it uh, apparently they wrote a script for this and then did the storyboards. And previously, all Disney movies were just like, do the storyboards, make the good scene, you know, make the main sequences, find the connective tissue, animate. Whereas this one is like, okay, we're going to make a proper screenplay for this first. And I, I don't know if that comes through in any way. If, um, if maybe the interactions seem a little more naturalistic is how I was reading it. Like the dialogue between characters is a little less stilted than usual. Maybe, although this movie too has a, in my opinion, it feels like it has a much smaller cast because it all takes place in like this one castle with just the servants. Like there's not a lot of, of extra side characters just like popping up and like unexpected side quests. It's, this one's very much by the numbers in that way, at least like 
they're in Bell's village and then they're in the castle and then they leave the castle and, you know, they fall in love and then they go back to the village again and then they go back to the castle again. Yeah. Yeah. It's sometimes nice to know the geography. It, it is a good one where you just, you know, the layout of the land by watching a movie. Um, the castle is a castle you can get because you, you watch movies now where it's a boom, 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 and you can't figure out what's happening in an action scene and which way is up and which way is down. So this does give you a nice feeling of place, which I like. Well, this is before the whole world had ADHD and everyone could just like <laughs> the, the three second cuts, right? As you go into the later movies, you notice that they don't let certain scenes last as long for kids' films because it's always just like chop, 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 chop. Well, a really good example recently would be uh, that last Mission Impossible film where the action sequences, you kind of know where everything is, so you understand what they're doing, um, which which I like. And I, what, what, I'm trying to think of more modern Disney animated films. I, I think animation is still able to do that for the most part. Uh, live action is where things really fall apart, I think. so. Yeah, I think like um, Finding Nemo is a really good example of like a broadcast that's constantly changing and meeting new people and... Um, like the conversations constantly changing about like what the topic is. Whereas Beauty and the Beast, they're talking to the same people constantly or singing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole point is you're stuck in a castle. So <laughs> if the movie doesn't make you feel stuck in a castle for a while, it didn't do it. Yeah, if, if the castle didn't have singing armoires and, and coffee pots, it would kind of be boring, right? She's just like stuck in a castle with this beast. Yeah, but it would have been a little more in line, I think, with those 70s, uh, Robin Hood accepting, but those 70s Disney films kind of had a little more plotting like that. Uh, and, and they still spiced up with a song, but they were trying to do a little more of that. And so, like the Aristocats, it didn't really light on fire until you got to the Jazz Cats at the end, I felt. So <laughs> this could have been like the same thing. Yeah, it's true. And, and one other final note, too, on the original story, from what I could gather, it's it's an interesting concept because they didn't have TV and movies and, and really anything like everything was stories back then for entertainment. So the original beauty and the beast wasn't necessarily a children's story. It was, if anything, it might've been an adult story in some ways. Um, I tried to peg it as a self-help book, right? Right. right. A bad self-help. book. Yeah. Well, it wasn't necessarily <laughs> written specifically there. And this, this one is not even related necessarily, but, uh, um, the story of Balfagor, which I think was a Machiavellian um, tale, where it's 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 on the same vein where it was written for adults, um, but this one was about uh, these guys show up at hell and the devil's like, you know, you, you know, pick up a pitchfork, you know, head over that way. But the guys all get together and they start blaming their wives and they say that it was their wives that caused them uh, to end up in hell. So the devil after hearing this for so many different guys that are showing up in hell. So this sounds like a joke. It's not, it's an actual story from the <laughs> 1600s or earlier. Um, but so the devil goes up to earth and he basically seduces one of these guys wives and long story short is like, he, he comes back to hell and he's like, all right, now I see what you guys were talking about. Like it's, it's insufferable. Like, so, the, so like the joke was that, you know, like, the, the wife was worse than the devil himself. But this was a, a story that was retold like hundreds and hundreds of years over time across many different cultures and regions. And this wasn't a kid's story because the whole punchline, like a kid wouldn't really get the, 
the joke in that, I guess. Um, but it's it's also not necessarily a joke because it's a legit folktale. So I don't know. And it's it's interesting. That's one of the oldest folktales is about guys complaining to the devil about how bad their wives are. I was about to say, it's a, it's a medieval Roddy Dangerfield joke, basically. Or, yeah, I can't remember the other guy, too. Like, <laughs> take my wife, please. I forgot who yeah, he was. Yeah, that's Rodney Dangerfield, yeah. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I guess I guess my critical analysis of this movie in the end is it's a very well-made film, that, but I just don't like the flavor. Like, you know, I live in Japan, and, and if you come with a really premium Japanese sake, Nihonshu, you know, it's going to give me a headache. <laughs> like just Nihon Shu, just it's like headache fuel for me. So it could be the best version ever, but I'm just not gonna like it, you know? I don't know if I would compare Beauty and the Beast to like the the best um sake or anything, but Well, I'm just saying as a Disney movie, it's very well constructed, very well made. So I'm not gonna slam it on the actual I'm not slamming the actual movie. I'm slamming my enjoyment of it. So you think this, not this one, you actually think the, the it's got detrimental programming for kids. So you would legit I, keep kids away from this one. I kept my daughter away from it for the most. I mean, I think she did see it. I just wasn't in the room. You know, it wasn't like I was angry she saw it. But I was like, I don't want to be like dad showing up and, hey, let's watch this. You know, I didn't really want to push it as like, here's something we should watch. Is there any movie that this would, that you would prefer to show this? Like, what about this versus uh, the Gnomobile? Oh, the Gnomobile? I was actually thinking opposite where we watched Moana several times and I felt okay about that. Well, Moana is, is about, she uh, dresses up like a guy, right? And then like shows that she can do everything a guy can do. Oh, or is that Mulan? Oh, which one did you say? I said Moana. Oh, the, uh, Moana. One. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, yeah, we watched that several times. So I, I felt a little better about, like, that's when we kind of enjoyed it. I guess as a parent, it's like, I don't, you know, I don't want to censor what my daughter gets into. But if it's like, hey, dad here is suggesting we take a look at this. I didn't want Beauty and the Beast to be one of those, mm. you know. If I walk in the room, she's watching it. That's fine. I don't care. But it's just like, I don't want it to be like, uh, you know, with, with dad's stamp of approval. <laughs> does that, does that mean by default, all other Disney movies she's seen technically get the, the father's stamp of approval? I'm thinking about that. I guess a lot of them do. So, you know, as we're talking through, um, we only watched Sword in the Stone once. Uh, so I, I don't feel too bad about that. Um, <laughs> that one, honestly, just watching Sword and Stone, it doesn't come across as creepy it's only when you read about yeah we yeah, were digging yeah, the creep that, on one that one ruined one, it so. forever for me but i did feel good i was like oh we only watched that once um <laughs> <laughs> i mean the ones that got played the most was frozen and it'll be very interesting when we get to frozen to see what we make of that one so but you know it was 2014 you well that was the first lesbian you couldn't Disney get away princess, from it right that's that's what that Thank one you. usually gets marketed as is it okay? That's that's fine. I don't. <laughs> but yeah, we we watched that an awful lot. By Frozen Two, she had uh, aged out, so I've actually never seen Frozen Two. But I've been told it plays like an X Men movie, which kind of makes me interested to watch it. It's an interesting way to pitch it. <laughs> okay, I haven't seen it, so I don't know. <laughs> we will get to that at some point. Um, I guess we will wrap this one up for today, unless you had a final. Uh, you already said final thoughts, mm-hmm. which is why I feel okay saying we're wrapping up. But uh, what's up in your world? Oh, um, well, man, I've got a bunch of stuff going on. I've got 
Frazzle Drip Funhouse is the latest comic that I just dropped on Indiegogo. And even if you're listening to this in the future, it should be available on ParanoidAmerican.com by now. Anyways, uh, I just announced the comic book I'm doing with Sam Tripoli called The Chaos Twins. That one should be announced in November and hopefully shipping by December. Uh, I've got The Chosen One issue two, which will probably be dropping around the same time as that. Another comic called Rising from the Ashes, which will be in January. And uh, man, a, a list. I'm, I'm going to start putting out toys next. I don't know if I if I showed you any of these, <laughs> but I've got one called the Hunter Biden Party Pack. Um, and that one's just kind of like a uh, that was my first trial run, but it went really, really well. People seem to really like it. So I'm going all out and I've got like five or six other ones coming out. But the other ones are going to be um, I don't want to say the word Lego, but like knockoff plastic building blocks building blocks yeah so there's gonna be like a hillary clinton adrenochrome uh it's called the super predator playset that one's gonna be in there there's gonna be a skull and bones um playset there's gonna be a bohemian grove one uh what a great topic a, ho- a whole bunch of them so yeah all those will be on paranoidamerican.com by the end of this year all right on my end, I, I do a lot of podcasting. You do a lot of podcasting, too. <laughs> but uh, I guess today I'll just throw out, uh, if you're listening to this and you want to hear some more rants on films, head for Films and Filth, the Citizen Kane of podcasting, <laughs> where we typically look at the top 100 films and the bottom 100 films as rated on IMDb. Uh, since the, the strikes in Hollywood have been continuing, we've, we've turned our focus off of... Uh, Hollywood films for the time being, which means we get to choose whatever insane crap we want. Uh, I just posted an episode for the movie 2000 Maniacs. Have you ever heard of that movie? I have. almost positive I've seen it, but I, I can't remember what it was about. Um, it's about a redneck brigadoon sort of town that, that murders Yankees that are coming through on the 100th anniversary of the Civil War. Uh, the Disney connection there is it was filmed in the town of St. Cloud, and some of the wilderness scenes may have very well been shot on what would be Walt Disney World about <laughs> five years later. So when they're rolling a guy in a barrel filled with spikes, uh, that could have been on Disney pro- what is now Disney property which makes it extra fun. So that might've been why they picked that particular plot of land in St. Cloud too. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the lot was really into the movie, <laughs> but um, you know what? I end a lot of my podcast uh, by saying, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go do that now. Maybe that's one thing I just don't like about this movie being in the same place the whole time. I always want to move around and see different sites. So this is like my nightmare to be stuck in the castle. So, I'm going to get out of the house. <laughs> yeah, I actually appreciate animations when it does things that are like larger than life. And like, I don't know. Sure, you dance and there's like a singing teapot. But I didn't get like my Disney fix as much from this movie as other ones. 